until you can get everyone in the same room to realize how the one change that you make over here is gonna affect something else over there. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard it likened to a Rubik's cube where our job as designers is to solve for all sides of the cube. But the problem that we face is that, you know, we have that developer who comes in and it's like, oh, I want this side to be red. All you have to do is just turn this right here and it'll be red. And we bear the responsibility, I think, of making all these parties kind of come together and realize that um, that's great, that's fantastic. I want it to be red too. <laughs> <laughs> but whenever I twist this one side to make it red, it messes up the other side, right? And, mm -hmm. and we have to work together to solve the whole cube. Otherwise, we're not actually going to get yeah. Hey, and welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff, I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Matt, I'm a growth engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. Today, we're gonna talk about a really cool topic around design decisions and how you communicate your design decisions to your stakeholders. And we're joined by an awesome guest that is probably the most qualified person we could possibly find to speak on this topic. We're joined by Tom Griever. He's a UX director at Bitovi, which is a front-end design and development consulting company. He's got a lot of really cool experience working with small companies all the way up to large public companies. Uh, and he recently has published a book with O'Reilly Press called articulating design decisions. Uh, we just did a workshop with him here uh, at HubSpot with our product design team. We were in there for a couple hours just talking about you know, how you deal with all of this stuff, what are some good tactics, how should you conduct yourself, and we all learned a lot. So we wanted to document some of that stuff and get it out there for you guys as well. So Tom, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, no, my pleasure, thanks for having me. So we, uh, we just talked through a lot of really, really in-depth stuff uh, around how you can articulate design decisions, but at a high level, what is what do you discuss in your book, and and uh, what are what are some of the the key themes that come out in that? Well, yeah. So I think that the the problem that I see in in our industry, in particular in, in UX and with a lot of designers, is that. Um, we are so focused on um, process and tools and art and kind of uh, creating something that, that we feel strongly about um, that we, we fail to remember that there are other people um, involved in our processes who are not designers and maybe don't have the same level of expertise that we do in design and maybe not even technology. And it's absolutely critical that we learn to talk to them about our designs and to explain our design decisions in a way that's going to make sense to them. And I think especially when it comes to, say, executive stakeholders, managers, um, who kind of have the authority to um, make changes to our work, um, it's really important that we learn to help them uh, see our perspective and convince them that, that our expertise is to be valued. We have to show them how and why our work is valued. Otherwise, we risk, we, we risk kind of losing 
losing out on that. It creates an opportunity where they might ask us to make a change that we disagree with, right? We may end up even shipping what we consider to be a, a poor user experience, all because we just weren't able to talk about it, right? And I think I think if we're if if we can be better at explaining these things and and effectively kind of making a case for our designs, then we'll be more likely to uh, be successful in design. And and by successful, I mean we'll be more likely to allow our designs the opportunity to even go out into the world and mm-hmm. and to make a difference. Yeah. That's awesome. What are what are some key things that you think play into that? Like where do you see designers taking missteps or, or losing in that process? I, I think that the biggest, uh, one of the biggest failures that we make is uh, our inability to really see our stakeholders um, just as people, right? I think that <laughs> mm-hmm. it's it's really important that we remember that these the, the people that are involved in these conversations with us, they're human, right? Like they have relationships outside of work and they have other things going on in their mind. You know, maybe the thing, the way that they respond to our work and to our designs, maybe it has nothing to do with us at all. Maybe it has nothing to do with our design. Maybe they're dealing with something even outside of the office or outside of our project. And we, we won't always know what those things are. Uh, we may, we'll probably never know what they are actually. But I think the more that we realize this and the more that we kind of see them as people that have to be involved in our process, you know, it's, it's messy, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes these conversations can be difficult, but I think you have to start at a place where you remember that these are these are real people that have emotions and feelings just like we do and we have to approach them with the same with the same care and level of empathy that we would our users and we yeah. were talking about this a minute ago in the in the in the workshop right empathy is this big buzzword right now in UX right oh we need to have more empathy for our users then we'll build better products but I think we need to have this that same level of empathy for our stakeholders right we have to approach them the same way those tactics and ideas for like developing empathy for users, we got to have that with our stakeholders first. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, our users will never even get to see it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, argue, like this reminds me of a conversation about internal culture, right? Like you can't deliver to your users um, unless your internal culture is almost the same type of care yeah. as, right? Yeah, yeah, like, totally. We feel like it's kind of a HubSpot thing too. Like that's just kind of what we talk about here. But it, this reminds me of that. Yeah, it's like if you if you interact with HubSpot's marketing, you already have an idea for what it's like to walk in the doors of this company, right? Kind of you you like reverse engineer that. Like if you have a, a toxic you know, internal design culture, that's going to be reflected in the product. Yeah, that's right. And I I think sometimes we hold our ideals for the user and for the product above those relationships that are that are so important. Mm-hmm. So the so the first step really is just kind of taking the time to understand people, right? Understand what they're dealing with, where they're coming from. Uh, you know, it's it's such a common problem I think for designers to feel like they go into a meeting and and someone else comes in, some executive walks in and just kind of blows up the whole thing, right? Oh, we gotta we need to make a change, or they get, we gotta start over, or the project is different, right? Well, maybe they just came from another meeting that we don't have uh, insight into, right? Maybe the budget just got cut. Maybe there's another priority, right? That that stuff happens all the time. And so I don't think we can look at these situations, which are so common, um, and believe that we have all of the insights necessary to pass some sort of a judgment on why they're coming to us with these uh, these requests. Mm -hmm. So thinking about it from the designer perspective, do you, like, I think that when you go into a stakeholder meeting with a mature designer, somebody that's 
not, may not necessarily mean experience, but it's just like the, they, they know how to conduct themselves. You have a certain type of experience, you know, when, when you're in that meeting and there are certain qualities that come out that sometimes are difficult to observe, but are there any specific qualities that you think designers can develop or adopt that will help them to articulate their design decisions better or or help people to buy into to what they're doing? Yeah, well, I mean, probably the most important skill we can improve upon to be better at this is listening, right? I think that, um, you know, sometimes we're in these situations and, and we're listening to, uh, we, we think that we're listening, I should say, to our stakeholders provide either feedback or, or suggestions on our designs. And in reality, all we're thinking about is how we're going to respond, right? We're not actually processing what they're saying. And, and we miss out on the opportunities to really address their needs in a way that's going to make sense, right? Mm-hmm. We, we're, we're, our minds are kind of going somewhere else. We're, we're, we're ready to just kind of launch into this epic defense of our work as soon as they're done talking, right? And I think we miss out on the opportunity to really kind of listen to them uh, intently and to read between the lines and to hear things that they're not saying. You know, they're going to say all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, and, and what they say they want and what they actually need could be two completely different things. And our, our job is to figure that out. And we can't do that unless we're really good at, at listening. Mm-hmm. So you have three uh, key categories of steps, right, yeah. uh, that, that people can take to make these meetings go better. They start right. with prepare, and then you move into listen, and then you move into respond. Yeah. What? How do these all work together? What are some of the key components of these that, that, uh, that you think people should be adopting? Yeah, so the book is purposefully laid out in kind of a linear format. So from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, we walk through a, basically a, a single meeting, right? For, mm-hmm. Kind of from the beginning to the end. And you alluded to that, that before the meeting even happens, we have to get prepared for the meeting. And that involves things like, you know, understanding and, and knowing how to approach our, our stakeholders, which we kind of already mentioned. Um, but it also means that we have to kind of think critically about what what we're going to say, what are the important things that we're going to say, what are what are our stakeholders expecting us to present to them, uh, what kinds of things are going to distract them from from our the point of the meeting, which ultimately is to get approval for our work, right? I mean, that's where we hope to end up. But too often, meetings can be derailed by stuff that just doesn't even matter. Mm-hmm. Um, the most common one is like with placeholder content, lorem ipsum copy or stockholder images, uh, sorry, uh, stock images. Um, sometimes if you're dealing with like, you know, financial numbers and stuff and you just have like a mock-up where you typed in some mm-hmm. random placeholder content, people are going to notice that the numbers don't add up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these kinds of things seem like uh, like such simple things. And, we, and you know, we use this because it's, we use these tools because it's easier for us to design using this sample content. But if you risk derailing the meeting because someone is distracted by, you know, an image that you used of their closest competitor, right? Mm-hmm. Then it's not, it's not going to serve you well and keeping the meeting on track and making sure you get to that point. What does that say about the people that you're in the meeting with who are being distracted by seemingly irrelevant things? What are your thoughts? Well, I think um, I think especially when you're dealing with you know executive level and manager types, 
um, I think it suggests that they're easily distracted, right? They they go from, <laughs> and no, really, they go from they go from meeting to meeting, right? They probably came into your meeting directly from another one. They've barely had time for their their uh, mental capacities to switch to the task at hand, and they're just having a knee jerk reaction to the very first thing that they see that maybe they don't understand. And I think it's important that we that we set the context for them, that we remind them why we're here. It maybe sounds repetitive or redundant, um, but I think that uh, I think that it's important that we remind them. Okay, here's the problem we're trying to solve. Right, this is why we came together today. Here's where we are in the process. Like what, whatever kind of short intro we need to provide to be sure that they're focused on the task is going to help us overcome some of those things. So that even if there are distractions, we can still kind of stay focused. Yeah, this was a really interesting thing to me. We did some role playing in the workshop, and uh, there were two different scenarios. One where the uh, stakeholder started attacking the design, and then the designer, uh, like she said, hey, I don't like how you've placed this element here. And then, or I don't like how you've redesigned this piece. And then the designer responded by saying, oh yeah, I placed it there because X, Y, Z, right? And then in the second scenario, she said the same like harsh direct criticism, but instead of the designer defending his design, what he did is he reminded the stakeholder of the goal of the project and said, well, in this project, these are the things that we were trying to accomplish, thus this solution. And I think that's like when distractions, when you think about like whenever whenever you're in an approvals meeting or when you're, when you're reviewing a design, it's actually a lot of the time, the things that kill your progress are not actual issues in the design itself or, right. or any lack of competency from the designer or the stakeholder stakeholder, but rather distractions that aren't directly tied to the project at hand. So something that I run into a lot is like, you know, we'll have conflicting goals, uh, you know, over like marketing wants to do one thing, sales wants to do another thing, and marketing will try to push their agenda in a project that is actually for sales. And you have to remind the stakeholders, actually, for this particular project, we're solving for this sales goal, so we're gonna do that now. But your issue, it's valid, we can fix that in an iteration, we can do that in a different project that's focused on that goal, but this is the thing that we're optimizing for. That's interesting. I also wonder, like, how much of this is because the context was not set properly in that initial kickoff meeting? Like where there are some issues or something where the designer just didn't really bake the initial thoughts into the design in the first place, and now they're running into these roadblocks. Yeah, well, and what's common is that these, uh, these goals um, they they change and morph over time. That's true. Right. We start out at the beginning of the project with a set of business requirements and we kind of think we have the goals and we understand what we're doing and two weeks into it someone comes along and says, oh, we forgot this one thing and oh, don't forget that widget and then we, we look back two months later and we're like, wait a minute, the thing that we're solving for now is completely different than what we started out to solve and so I think that's why what you were saying, Austin, it's important to kind of always remind them of the problem that we're solving because sometimes Sometimes these goals and these problems change on the stakeholder end and we don't know about it. We don't hear about it mm -hmm. until we've already like shown up at the meeting. And I've had that happen to me before. You show up at the meeting, you start getting all this feedback and you're like, whoa, whoa, hang on, wait a minute, where is this coming from? And you kind of dive into that conversation and you realize that a week ago, the executives got together and they completely changed everything and they forgot to tell us, right? Yeah. I mean, that that does happen. And so I think you have to, you have to really listen to them and kind of understand where this feedback is coming from so that you can form 
the best response and make sure that you're staying focused on on the real thing. Yeah. So thinking back to that sort of framework that you give, like, you know, having the designer prepare before the meeting, that's basically what we're discussing right now. It's like you want to, this is exactly what, what Tom talks about is reducing cognitive load, removing distractions, keeping it focused on that particular goal, that particular project. Another thing I thought was really interesting that you brought up is just taking in account the, the context that the stakeholder is walking into the meeting with and how things that we may take for granted as designers may not be inherently obvious to them. Like for example, common design patterns. Right. Like this, this seems like a logical thing for a designer to do. It's like, oh, that's always how you design this thing, but it may not be the same for the stakeholder. Yeah, well, and uh, probably, I mean, a big problem is when our stakeholders don't share the same vocabulary that we do the, when we talk about design. Um, and, and, and they probably, I mean, most of the time they probably don't, right? I mean, unless you have an executive who is kind of intimately involved in your process on a daily basis, they're not necessarily going to pick up on that language. I think as design teams, it's really important that we develop a common vocabulary. And often I think that's the case that kind of that can happen organically over time, but it doesn't transfer quite automatically to our stakeholders. And we have to be sure that we're not using words, not saying things that don't make sense to them, right? Mm -hmm. So when you talk about that one widget or that one thing, that design pattern that seems, like you said, seems so obvious to you, um, maybe they don't. Maybe they just don't. Simply don't understand the concept of a design pattern. I think sometimes, as we have the opportunity to help them see why that's valuable, that you know we need our users to kind of have these expectations. We used that pattern over here. We're going to reuse it over here, right? That stuff is really important for them to know and, and and sometimes just them knowing that makes it more likely that they'll agree with you i actually had a a client once who objected to a particular design a, a particular design of a control and it turned out that it was just the word we were using right mm -hmm. we were just using this word that she didn't understand and she was like no we can't do that because she had a different image in her mind of what that looked like and how what that interaction would be like once we showed her and we kind of had a better set of of visuals to to demonstrate what we were talking about, it became a lot clearer to her. And mm -hmm. it was just, but it was just a, a mismatch of vocabulary. Yep. So under prepare, you talk about reducing cognitive load, but you also talk about getting in the right frame of mind yeah. and giving up control, checking your ego at the door. And this really interesting piece that you say, which is leading with yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Like, what does it, what does it mean really to give up your ego and, and to lead with, with yes, because this was a super interesting part of the workshop. Yeah. I, I think that, um, in designers, we're in a creative process. It's natural that we feel some level of attachment to our work, right? This is this thing that we made, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it gets to grow up and kind of go out into the world and live a life of its own. And it can be really hard to watch someone else, um, from our perspective, kind of tear it down, right? And I think we can take this stuff personally, we can get defensive. And so I always encourage people to try to check that ego at the door, to, to learn to give up control. And it's it, it really is nothing more than just a mental exercise of recognizing that this is not about me, right? This is not about my work. This is not a, this is not a reflection on me as a person. 
Um, but this is an opportunity for me to not just receive feedback on my work, but to facilitate a conversation about design. And I think when you move from that position of, of feeling like you're receiving something, which is directed at me, right, versus uh, facilitating a conversation, which is more about the whole team and about the project, um, then I think that that kind of helps you um, that helps you make that switch in your mind. We 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 don't we can't force our stakeholders to agree with our decisions. We we can't make them do it. We have no choice. The only tool we have in these situations is our words and our intellect, you know, and to show them that we're smart and that we know what we're talking about, that we have a logic and a reason behind why we do what we do. And, I, and when you demonstrate that effectively, you make it more likely that they'll agree with you. Mm -hmm. uh, you also asked about uh, leading with a yes. Yeah. I forgot to leave. <laughs> I left that out. Um, yeah, leading with a yes is a, is a, is a great uh, concept and it's something that I learned from uh, from a mentor of, of mine in a, in a previous job um, and I, I think the quote from a, a book that that he had been reading at the time was something to to the effect of you know innovation rarely happens in, in a place where um, yes or where in a, in a place where no I should say mm -hmm. is the primary response and the idea is that yes is like a magical word that kind of opens people up to new opportunities and to new options right and so um, the the concept I'll also kind of comes from uh, improv. So in improvisational comedy, there's this um, there's this uh, exercise called the yes and, where what one actor brings to the other, the other um, has to say yes to. And I think that our our meetings with stakeholders are also improvisations, right? We have the opportunity to take that conversation somewhere, and you can do that by by leading with it with a yes. Now, this doesn't mean that you get to let them like have their way with your design, even if you disagree with what they're suggesting. I think it's possible to lead with a yes. Yes, that's really valuable input. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yes, I completely agree that we need to solve this problem, right? Anytime that you can start your response very literally with the word yes, you make it more likely that that other person is gonna hear what you have to say and and probably, hopefully agree mm -hmm. with you, yeah. Have you ever done uh, improv before? Is that a thing you do? Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in high school, junior high and high school, I was involved in, in, in acting and did a fair amount of improv, but I've never done it, no, professionally. <laughs> I was just wondering, I know, no. kind of a tangent. <laughs> but, but I, I mean, I think this is, this is an interesting point, though, because, I mean, so much of life is improvisational, right? And I think that when we're in these relationships with stakeholders, when we see this as an opportunity to kind of, I mean, we're going into these meetings sometimes and kind of winging it. I mean, don't get me wrong, hopefully we're more prepared <laughs> that right that's that's part of like the point of the book but it is true that you have to kind of play it by ear and you have to walk into these meetings and kind of make stuff up as you go and I and so the, the, the purpose of the book is to provide us with kind of a set of tools and messages and tactics that we can use and and it's not it's not meant to be super prescriptive like there's one way that you can do it and bam you're good at articulating design decisions it's really more of like a collection of ideas that hopefully if you have these in your mind you'll be better prepared to to do that improvisation when you're in those situations. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, another thing that I'm curious about, um, this, some of the things that we're talking about here give me these little twinkles of kind of like a Dale Carnegie type of, like, <laughs> is there well, any influence at all um, with some of like those principles or is it kind of like a very modern take or almost like derivatives of um, 
You know, what are your thoughts? Yeah, that also it's interesting you bring that up because um, one of the uh, tactics in the book that I recommend is um, appealing to a nobler motive, which is actually one of the steps of communication from Dale Carnegie's uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People, which um, I, that, it's an incredible book. And I think, I, I, I mean, there's no doubt I've been influenced, I think, probably by that book and my approach to, to people. And I think a lot of what Dale Carnegie talks about is valuable in, well, it's valuable in any relationship, right? But I think you, you can take those things into, into our context and make them just as relevant. But that particular tactic, appealing to a nobler motive, I think it's something, I, I, honestly, I think it's, it's easy to forget that we go into these situations and that other person, they have a need that maybe isn't being met. Like when someone disagrees with you, that's what that means, right? It means you're not meeting their needs. And so you have to look at that situation and go, okay, the, the, they're in disagreement. They think we need to make a change. This is an opportunity for me to think about how I can address their needs better because I'm obvi- I obviously haven't done it with what we have here, right? And I think when we think about it that way, it makes it a lot more tenable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've covered preparing before the meeting pretty well, preparing yourself as a designer. But when you're in the meeting, you say that in a really key piece is just listening yeah. to the stakeholder and, and what they have to say and and responding based off of that. And you break listening down into two core buckets, the That's first right. of which is implicit listening, That's right. and the second is explicit listening. I kind of want to cover both of those because I think they're really important. And, and especially when you, like, you know, a, as a designer, you kind of get like thrown into the fire as a junior designer. And it's not like in design school or, or you know, if you're like me, you're self-taught. It's not like anybody on the internet is like, hey, dude, this is how you talk to people in design meetings. Like, you just learn as you go. And one of the things that is actually really difficult to pick up on is how important it is to listen. So what are some of like the implicit pieces first, and then we can cover the explicit? Yeah, so the the implicit pieces are meant to be the things that you can do that don't sort of outwardly show that you're listening, right? These are the things that um, there, there's not necessarily like a, a physical um, appearance of, of listening. But one of those things is just letting them talk as much as they want, right? I think that sometimes we are too tempted to kind of interrupt them when they're talking, especially if we know that what they're saying is either maybe untrue or based on some misinformation. It can be too tempting to not allow our stakeholders to sort of fully explain um, what it is that they're suggesting. Um, one of the other skills for, for implicit listening is to try to hear what isn't being said, right? Um, what are, can, can, how can we read between the lines? You know, what is the elephant in the room? What other things might be going on that, that we're not aware of? We may not know the answers to those questions, but I think, I think understanding that there often are those things is, is an important part of listening and, and kind of trying to see how we can form our response. Um, and then the next one is to un- kind of uncover the real problem. People are going to tell us exactly what they think needs to be done. It's going to be prescriptive advice almost always, right? Move this here, drop this down there, make it red, you know, make it bigger, whatever the suggestion is. And we have to look through those suggestions and find the problem that they're actually trying to solve. And sometimes it's just by asking them directly, what problem are you trying to solve by suggesting mm-hmm. this, right? That's a good way of doing it. Um, but the last one, which I think is really interesting, is is to practice the art of the pause. That means that that as you're letting them talk and you're listening to them, 
just when you think they're done, just pause for two or three seconds and just let there be silence, yeah. right? Because I, I think that reinforces this trust that you want them to have. It, 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 it communicates to them that you are listening to them um, and, and reinforces that you're really just kind of taking the time to process what they, what they said. And it can be kind of awkward. Right, it can be difficult to do, and, and you know sometimes I'll say something like, "Oh, that's interesting." You know, let me think about that for just a second. Right, even just a transition like that, I think is is appropriate. Those are all the the implicit ones. The explicit ones are more about like, you want to be sure you're taking notes, right? You want to be sure that you're showing that you take value in what people are saying. Yeah, exactly. If what they said is valuable enough for you to write it down, I mean, it's amazing how writing something down just makes it feel more permanent to people, right? It, there, there's no fear that it's going to be lost and just kind of go off into the air and never be heard from again, right? Even if you have no intention of following up with that one specific request, or if you think that that's not going to be able to be added to this sprint or cycle or whatever, it's really important to write that stuff down. Oh yeah, that's a really interesting point. Let me make let me make a note of that, right? It just tells the other person that you value what they said. Asking clarifying questions, right? Being sure that you understand what they're saying and asking them, okay, what I hear you saying is, right? Repeating it and rephrasing it back to them. Okay, what I hear you saying is that you want this, you know, moved over here or dropped down there, right? I, I, th I think we can clarify what they're saying and by repeating it back to them, it, sh it proves really that we were listening to them because we just told it back to them in a different way. And, but then it also gives them the opportunity to maybe, you know, clarify Adjust. and misunderstand it. Yeah. That's something, yeah, that's really something that I found to be valuable especially like when you're dealing with high like higher level executives people that really see things from like they're looking at a bigger picture than a designer could ever imagine is like if we go through the design and they say like oh i like this i, I don't like this i want to move you know whatever there's a lot of critiques that they can have that all probably fall into like certain buckets. And at the end of the meeting, just saying, okay, so what I was hearing is this, this, and this. These are the things that I'm going to do and change in the design and confirming with them. It's, I almost never have somebody disagree with me on that. Like it's, it's almost never like, oh no, like you got it all wrong. But what it is, is it builds a sense of like trust and that I'm going to walk away from this meeting and I'm going to do what you expected me to do based off of the things that we discussed and we have a common understanding on this. It's super efficient. Yeah. Well, and sometimes what people suggest may not be as important as we thought it was in the moment, right? And so when you have the opportunity to kind of repeat it back to them, they may, I mean, you may be in a situation where they correct it and like remove something from your plate that you were <laughs> expecting to change, right? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, no, I was just making an offhanded comment about that thing. We don't actually need to do that. I mean, that does happen, right? It's maybe not as common as we would like for it to be, but it mm -hmm. does happen where people just kind of throw out these things that they don't, that they don't really believe are important. It was just kind of their first thought when yeah. they saw yeah. it. Yeah. I I think it's interesting, um, especially when repeating back to people. I would imagine that um, you know you come in and you might think that one person thinks that they know more than another person, and you like. I would assume that you discover that there is like a common trust. Like they expect you to be the designer, and they're like they're not the ones who like they want you to be an expert, right? I think I've run into situations where. Um, I feel like I'm constantly being trumped as though I don't have the expertise, mm -hmm. even though I was hired to do that. And I, looking back on it, it's absolutely because I didn't approach it the right way. My technique was very defensive and mm. we didn't get anywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that that's a really common problem, right? I mean, sometimes, and that, that's why like getting in the right frame of mind is so important. Sometimes it's just that mental switch of like, I'm not in control of this and you know this is not about me. Just doing that alone is gonna make you um, respond in a way that's more appropriate, I think. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay, so we've got a pretty good idea for preparing before meetings and listening during meetings. The final piece that you touch on is responding. Like after yeah. you've listened, how do you respond to the feedback that you've been given? And again, this is so convenient. Break it down into two core categories, the first of which is strategies and the second is tactics. Do you want right. to kind of walk us through how you're thinking about that? Sure, yeah. So there's there's a few like approaches that you can take kind of depending on your your stakeholders or the, you know, kind of your company and how things work on on your team and um, those strategies kind of inform then the, the tactics that you choose to apply right the tactics are kind of the specific things that you're going to do so you can appeal to a, a nobler motive like we talked about the Dale Carnegie's um, reference right we want to point to that goal or the uh, objective or the metric or whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish right and say this is where we're headed right I think and if, and if we can attach our design decisions to that we we make it much more likely that people are going to agree with our choices uh, the next one is to just simply represent the user, right? We may be the only window that our stakeholders have into the world of our users. And I think it, we bear the responsibility to to bring that to our stakeholders. It could be just a persona. It could be an actual like snippet from a usability test. Well, like whatever the case is, we need to be able to, to represent the user in these um, in these situations. Um, and then the last one is to just actually demonstrate the effectiveness of our designs, right? Whether that's like visually demonstrating it on a screen and like showing how it works and what it does, or whether it's putting it in an environment where we can test it, you know, either through an A-B test or by looking at past analytics, right? I mean, we have the opportunity to show them exactly why what we recommend is working. So kind of based mm -hmm. on those strategies and which one you think is gonna work in your situation, there's a number of tactics that you can apply then to those strategies to to present your designs. One of them is to show comparison, right? You kind of want to take the design that you are proposing and compare it to the one that they want to see happen. And sometimes just kind of visually, it's easy to see the differences between the two. Um, another one is just to propose an alternative, right? You're going to go to a meeting and someone's going to say, no, you know, make it red. And you're going to have to come back immediately with a different alternative than you, than you showed up with, right? And I think that's an important skill for designers to have, to be able to kind of think of these things really quickly mm -hmm. on the spot. Um, uh, something I've been wondering uh, so far, we've been talking a lot about stakeholders. Yeah. And something I've always encountered going into these meetings is that stakeholders are not just executives, right? Mm -hmm. You might go into this meeting and you have your marketer over here and you have a developer who has all this context about how the thing works. And then you have maybe an executive and maybe someone from support. You never know. And sometimes there's some conflict between what each party wants. Mm -hmm. The marketer is going to be looking at the design and saying, oh, this is going to change something about my funnel. I don't feel comfortable with this. Support person is going to say, oh, this is going to be a headache for me with support. Developers going, I did not write this code for this to work with this change. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. And then the executives just like doing and saying everything that executives always say, just blowing everything up. How do you deal with conflict resolution when you're in these kind of meetings? Yeah, well, I think if you stay focused on the goal of the project, it becomes a lot easier. I think that sometimes the um, developers, you know, they have different personal goals maybe than the designers do or than the marketing people do. And we bring that kind of agenda or that perspective to these conversations. And I think it's important to kind of call that out, right, and be like, okay, developers, I'm really sorry. I know you didn't build it to do it this way, but the goal for the project is that we do this. And so mm -hmm. we, we, you know, we kind of need, we kind of need your help on this. The same is true with marketing, right? Marketing always has specific ideas about how we're going to do it. And, and they may come with a slightly different goal or slightly different take on the goal that we agreed on, right? Mm -hmm. Getting those people talking is absolutely important. 
And until you can get everyone in the same room to realize how the one change that you make over here is going to affect something else over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard it likened to a Rubik's Cube where our job as designers is to solve for all sides of the cube. But the problem that we face is that, you know, we have that developer who comes in and is like, oh, I want this side to be red. All you have to do is just turn this right here and it'll be red. And we bear the responsibility, I think, of making all these parties kind of come together and realize that um, that's great. That's fantastic. I want it to be red too. <laughs> but whenever I twist this one side to make it red, it messes up the other side, right? And, and we have to work together to solve the whole cube. Otherwise, we're not actually going to get yeah. where we need to go. It's kind of the painful truth of it. Yeah, yeah. 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 I really like that metaphor. It's a really good <laughs> metaphor. All right. But kind of one of the coolest things about all of this is that you wrap it up in an acronym uh, that basically any designer can follow when they're responding in a meeting and go through these steps, and they're probably going to account for a lot of the key things that they need to be paying attention to. Do you want to tell us, like, what's your acronym and and what are the the pieces to it? Yeah, so um, it's what I call the ideal response. So the the gist is that when you're in a meeting, you need kind of a quick way to be sure that you remember all the important parts of your your discussion and to be sure that you you don't forget something. And so I broke it up into uh, the word ideal. And so the first step of the word is uh, to identify the problem, right? That's where we always want to start. We want to set that context. We want to remind them why we're here. Here's the problem we're solving for. Um, The next letter is D, describe your solution, right? Now we have the opportunity to sort of tell them how our solution solves that problem. Um, The next letter is is E, empathize with the user, right? I said earlier, we've got to be sure that we always kind of bring the user into the conversation that, you know, we're practicing a user-centered design approach. We've got to be able to kind of bring that to the table. The next letter is, is is A, right? We have to appeal to the business. And this is maybe the one that we forget more than anything, mm-hmm. right? We have to be sure that we're appealing to our stakeholders' needs and we're appealing to the business and that we're achieving the goals of the business. Because if we don't do that, we don't get a paycheck, like, right? <laughs> like we have to be able to appeal to whatever the business needs. And then the last one, which is, is of critical importance, is that you don't leave that meeting without some decision. And so the L stands for lock-in agreement. Right. And that doesn't mean that you agree on the specific solution. It means that you agree to move forward with something, that you're making a decision, that you're doing something, maybe even if it's wrong in the short term. Uh, there's nothing worse than leaving a meeting and feeling like you don't know what was decided. Right. Yeah. So you have to be able to move forward. And that L is absolutely critical in the word ideal, because if you remove the word, uh, if you remove the letter L and you don't get that agreement, then all you have is an idea. And so you always want to be sure <laughs> I you, you were add, gonna add that a different L. letter. It's like, and if I use something like next steps, it would be Ideen, and that's not a word. <laughs> right, and that's not a word, yeah. Sorry. No, it had to fit nicely with the idea, and then you add the L, and you get the ideal yeah. the ideal response, the ideal situation, really. I love this acronym because it's like I'm usually not big on acronyms, but I love this one because it really does take you through, like, all of those key pieces. And you're so right. Like, every time that you and I talked about this acronym, the, the thing that stood out to me the most is the A. It's like it makes not in the grand scheme of things it may not be the most important but it's definitely the most neglected by designers like yeah. we always want to e empathize with the user but very rarely do we appeal to the business and actually as a UX designer especially you serve two core groups and that is your users and your business but it can be tough especially like you know, having a a brain that's wired like a designer, unless you're like a more technical designer, which is like really on the UX side of things, it can be tough to figure out how you 
how you appeal to the business, how you know, like how you pull the data to to justify your design or or to help the stakeholder who may only speak in quantitative terms to understand why you did what you did. What are some ways that you think about that? Like how can a designer appeal to the business, to the C-level executive? Well, we always have to know what the end goals are for the business, right? We have to know what the metrics are that need to be improved, right? If I mean, the most common one probably is like with conversion or engagement, right? Those are, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, our organizations need to make more money, right? We need to sell more of something. And like at the root level, that's where we have to go. Like that's what we have to point to. Our designs have to move the needle. And if they don't, then no one's gonna care. No one's gonna care how cool it is. No one's gonna care what that animation looks like if we can't actually make a difference in our in our companies and our in our on our teams and we have to be prepared to talk about that um, I think it's really really important and it's something that I think we, we like you said we just don't do it enough right yeah we don't, we don't think about it quite as often as we should yep all right you guys have heard it now you know what it takes to 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 really articulate design decisions prepare listen respond and use the ideal framework. I think uh, this is super powerful stuff. It's you know softer skills that are actually really important for designers to develop. If anybody wants to learn more about the the methodologies that that you propose, you know the ideal framework, whatever it may be, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, I'm active on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm probably the only Tom Griever that I know of. So if you just uh, Google it, you'll figure it out. Um, you can buy the book on Amazon and uh, on O'Reilly.com. There's also a video series that accompanies the book that's meant more for, it's useful, I think, for teams that are reading the book together. And so you can purchase that directly from O'Reilly. There's one short video for every chapter in, in the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, look me up, send me a message. I, I love hearing from people that I think that the, this is this is something that is of importance to me that I see the value of, and I love hearing from other people about how they applied this stuff and, and what the results were, and maybe even other ideas, different messages, different strategies that they've employed to um, get the results that we need to be sure that our designs are are actually making a difference. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll put some links in the description to uh, to Tom and and to the book and. Uh been, it's really been great having you on, Tom. We've we've definitely appreciated it. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, if for any reason you feel like reaching out to us here at the UX and Growth podcast, we do have an email address as well. It's hello at uxandgrowth.com. Uh, we're looking forward to your messages. We also do forwards. So if for some reason, you know, you could don't remember what happened about 30 seconds ago with the description about how to reach Tom, we will forward the message to Tom. <laughs> Thank you very much and have a great rest of your day.